We're in Matthew chapter 13. It's on page 978. We'll be sticking very, very closely with that text this morning. So if you have it open in front of you, that'll be a great help to you. The visiting preacher was at the door shaking hands with people at the end of the service, a little bit like I would do or our visiting preachers here would do. Nobody was saying very much to him on their way out until one man on his way out said, listen, I want to talk to you about your sermon. That's the worst sermon I've ever heard. It was too long. It was boring. And it was irrelevant. So the the visiting preacher, as you can imagine... Was, was just gutted, you know. He had actually been invited that day around to the clerk of session's house to have lunch with the clerk of session. And he really wasn't much company, and the clerk of session noticed this. And he asked him at one point, you know, what's wrong? So he explained uh, about this, this interaction that he'd had on the door uh, with this particular guy who, who'd said all this stuff. And the clerk of session, oh, don't worry about him. He just repeats what everyone else says. The, the quality of the preaching has probably been a topic of conversation at Sunday lunch for as long as people have preached. And I think it always will be as long as preaching exists. I want to get, begin this morning by asking you a very straight question. Is the preaching at Kirkpatrick Memorial any good? I remember asking a similar question one time in a congregation and one member didn't understand it as a rhetorical question and shouted out, a bit like the heckling I got from over here this morning. Is the preaching at Kirkpatrick Memorial any good? Whenever I preach here or Monty preaches or any of the other guest preachers or or members of the congregation, when they preach, when you go home, What's your response to the kind of preaching you hear here? How well do you think we preach at Kirkpatrick Memorial? I'll come back to that a little bit later. But first we're going to take a moment to listen to the greatest preacher uh, the world's ever heard, Jesus Christ, God among us. Remember the context here. Throughout most of chapter 12, Matthew's been telling us about a growing opposition to Jesus. Particularly among the religious leaders, they've become so angry with him that they're looking for a way to kill him. So that's the one camp, people who are, who are out to get Jesus. But then in the very final verses of chapter 12, Jesus reminded us that that's, or Matthew reminded us that that's not all, always the way. That there are some people who, who love Jesus and who respond to him, and who are so open to him that he uses wonderful language to describe them. He says they're his family. They're his mother. They're his brothers and sisters. So it seems that the world is divided when it comes to Jesus Christ. There are those who who don't want anything to do with him, many of whom end up positively hating him. And then there are those who see him as as their everything. 
the, the very hope of their lives. In the opening verses of chapter 13, Matthew tells us that there's a huge crowd that has gathered to hear Jesus. Now, now I want you to imagine this for a moment. We, we hear quite often in the Gospels that Jesus preached to crowds in the thousands. So Jesus is down at the Odyssey. There are five, six, we don't know, thousands of people here on this particular occasion. Now you'd imagine that Jesus would really make the most of that opportunity. It wouldn't be the day for a duff sermon. It would be the day to get it right. It would be the day to to preach so clearly that everyone understands it. It would be the day to preach with such passion that everyone responds. It would be the day when, goodness, if you're God among us, all of those people, all of those thousands of people should be responding positively. That's what Jesus should be aiming for, preaching in a way that 100% of these people believe. It's not what Jesus does. Instead, he tells a story, a bizarre riddle kind of a story. Matthew calls it a parable. And the disciples don't get it. Whenever they do the post-match analysis over Sunday lunch with Jesus, they tell him, so what on earth are you doing, Jesus? What was that all about? Why are you talking to these people in parables? So Jesus takes a moment to explain why he uses parables. And I want to look at this just for a moment before we jump in to look at this parable of the sower itself. Jesus says that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He says that to his disciples. You've seen something that a lot of these other guys haven't seen. Whoever has will be given more, and he'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why I speak in parables. Seems really weird. We're going to have to stick with this for a moment to work out what it means. Jesus then goes on to describe the crowd who who are hearing him, the thousands, that Galilean audience. And he speaks of them in the same terms that Isaiah the prophet used of people in his day. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't understand. Now we're grateful to Matthew at this point because he makes a connection that that we wouldn't easily see. He, he makes explicit this connection back to the, the passage in Isaiah. It's quoted, as you can see in the footnote, from Isaiah chapter 6. It's a passage where God calls Isaiah to be a prophet, and he tells him, listen, Isaiah, these people aren't going to listen to you. This people's heart has become calloused. They'll hardly hear with their ears. They've already closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, don't expect these guys to listen. Just because I'm sending you, don't expect a positive response. And Jesus is making the same connection with the people of his day. He says, they hear me speak, but they don't really hear. They see the things I do, but but they're blind. 
So Jesus, Jesus knows here that this audience is hard-hearted, that they don't listen to his teaching. Whenever we tend to think of parables, we tend to think of them as, as nice wee stories, full of illustrations, to make it easier for people to understand. A heavenly story with an earthly meaning, does that ring any bells? On the contrary, Jesus says these parables are not to make it easier for people to understand. They're to make it harder. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. That's why I speak to them in parables. Do you see now how Jesus is using parables? He's using them as a filter. He knows in that crowd of thousands before him, he knows that the vast majority have already got their hearts, their hearts hardened. They've already decided that they're not really going to listen. They'll show up for the experience. They'll listen to the nice stories. But they're not there with an open heart and an open mind to see what the word of God is for them on that occasion. And Jesus... Jesus doesn't chase after them. Instead, he says, I'm going to tell some stories that are only going to be open for those who will give themselves to to finding out what these stories mean. They're going to be like a filter. The disinterested will stop. They'll falter. It's only those who are passionate to understand me and to know me who will get it, who will know what I'm talking about. Folks, I want you to think about that for a moment. If that sounds strange to you, I want to suggest that the whole of life with God is like that. We don't enter into life with God into following Jesus Christ casually. This isn't something that you just swan your way into. The kingdom is open to those who seek first the kingdom. In the Old Testament, the prophet said, you will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. You don't drift in to life with God. Nobody drifted into life with Jesus Christ. He almost made it difficult for people to hear him and to understand him. Folks, don't let any of this put you off because the clear teaching of the Bible is that so long as we do have hearts after Jesus Christ, so long as he is our passion and our desire, he will show himself to us. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But if you're not asking, seeking or knocking, forget it. This isn't for you. We've worked out in a few moments there why Jesus used parables. We're going to move very quickly through this first parable that Matthew records for us in his gospel. It's probably the best known, and the danger here is to overbake or to overkill this one. So we'll move pretty quickly. Jesus tells the story in verses 3 to 8 of Matthew 13. And then he interprets it 
for his disciples in verses 18 to 13. So we're actually going to jump back and forward between those two chunks in the chapter for the next few minutes. We're told in verse 3 that a farmer went out to sow his seed. And that seed is the word of God. So here we have a scenario where the, the seed of the word of God is being spread. It's about preaching or our teaching. I would say, though, the parable is not really about preaching. I would suggest that the parable is about what happens whenever people hear preaching. It's about the response to, to preaching or to God's word. So Jesus tells us then about four different responses. And the first three are negative. Let's quickly move through these. He tells us about the seed that fell on the path doesn't take root. Of course not. Birds come along and they eat it and that seed is wasted. Jesus isn't naive. He knows that as he preaches to that crowd of thousands that day, he knows that some hearts are as receptive uh, as tarmac is to to seed. Nothing is going to happen there. The doors are closed and nobody's home spiritually. Now each one of those folks will have had a different reason for being hardened against the the word of God when they hear it. For some it will be intellectual pride. They'll say, goodness, he doesn't expect me to take that seriously, does he? So they won't listen for that particular reason. For others it will be a sense of not wanting to change their lifestyle. I know how I want to live, and anything I hear that challenges that, forget it. Somebody else might be self-righteous, not very interested in this teaching of God's word that says that they're a sinner, that they need to be forgiven. And for some people, they're simply bored and indifferent. I've heard it all before. Same old, same old, same old. You see, there were people in the crowd that day, and although they'd come to hear Jesus' word, it bounced off them like water off a duck's back. They were non-stick. Their hearts were Teflon-coated. Nothing was ever going to connect with them. And they probably thought that they were... They were well within their rights, so that they were very clever and sophisticated, not being sucked in by all that stuff that he was saying. But Jesus makes an interesting observation. He identifies who it is who's preventing them from hearing God's word. Look down to verse 19, Jesus' interpretation. He says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes... And snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Jesus knows that every time he preaches, Satan is at work to discredit the word of God. Every time people are listening to God's word, he knows that Satan's there trying to distract them. Friends, I know and I want to... To make it clear to you this morning, Satan is at work here now because we're in a position where we're trying to open our lives to the work of God. The seed snatched away and nothing 
comes of it. Jesus tells us in verse 5 about a second kind of a seed, and it's the seed that falls on rocky places. He says it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. As well as people who don't listen at all, there are people who do. There are people who listen and they respond almost instantly. They think, this is brilliant. This is for me. And unfortunately, their enthusiasm doesn't last. It might be that their response to God's word was a very emotional thing. They get caught up in the, the crowd hysteria on the occasion or, or there was a bit, of, a bit of an emotional hype on that particular day. It's the kind of warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you've watched a nice film. That's what happened. And they respond to the word of God. They receive the words... The, the word with joy, says Jesus in verse 20. But then when their circumstances change, the adrenaline subsides and, and they come down off their high. Maybe this person feels cheated. They told me that Christianity made you happy. Well, it hasn't. They told me that Christianity would give me friends. Well, I haven't got any. It must have been just a funny phase I went through, just a, a flash in the pan. I'm not going to be a Christian any longer. He has no root, says Jesus in verse 21. He lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. This is a difficult one. And if you've been around church any length of time, you'll know the reality of this. You'll have seen this very thing happen where somebody will respond really enthusiastically. Uh, they'll tell you that they're saved. They'll tell you that their life has been changed. They'll be uh, super active in church activities and in all sorts of other things. They'll get involved in everything, but then six months later... There'll be nowhere to be seen. I don't have time to deal with everything that's involved in that scenario this morning. But Jesus flags it up as a real thing. He says there are people who make a good start and then fail. There's a third type of seed that Jesus tells us about, seed that fell on the thorny ground in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Jesus recognizes again that there are some people who'll hear his word, they'll respond to it, but they'll be distracted in the long run. Again, there's an initial enthusiastic response. There is a plant, there is initial growth. And these guys aren't like the ones who, who fell on the, the rocky ground because they don't seem to give up their commitment to Jesus altogether. This plant, I think, keeps, keeps on living. It's only that it continues to live shriveled and dominated by the thorns and the weeds all around it. For each person, it, it'll be a different thing that'll distract them from their initial love for God. For young people, it might be education. 
You know, for, the, for this period in my life, I have to give my all to getting those qualifications and getting educated. Or, or maybe it's sport. Or maybe it's the pursuit of a particular type of relationship. For middle-aged people, it's, it's family life. It's financial stress. It's career ambition, really making sure that we go as far as we can. All of that can easily overshadow an initial commitment to Christ. In old age, the preoccupations are still there. It's only they're different. Now it's our health. It's our grandchildren. It's our garden. Whatever stage of life we're at, there seem to be dozens of distractions. Jesus talks in verse 22 about the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. These things choke God's word and the life that it was creating in us. They make us finally unfruitful. We've seen there three responses to the word of God. I want to go back just for a moment to a question that I asked near the start of our sermon today. Is the preaching at Kirkpatrick Memorial any good? I didn't mean to be flippant when I asked you that. I think it's a very important question and one that I want to hold before me. Uh, it's my prayer that the preaching is good and that it'll, it'll get an awful lot better sometime soon. But for all the post-match analysis of preaching that there is over Sunday lunch, this parable asks a different question. It asks a question that I want you to dwell on for a moment. It forces us to ask instead, is the listening any good? How well do we listen to the word of God at Kirkpatrick Memorial? How well do I listen to this stuff before I come and preach week by week? How well do we listen to the word of God? That's what Jesus is getting at here in this parable. He's reminding us that not everyone who hears God's word really gets it. If you look down at verse 9, Jesus finishes his initial story with an invitation to pay attention to our listening. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen to what George Buttrick, a great American preacher, says about the importance of hearing properly. He says, hearing is an urgent business. We assume that because the initiative is with the speaker, that the message controls the hearer. But the roles may be reversed. The hearer may control the message. An appeal, even the appeal of Jesus Christ, may be frustrated by unreceptiveness. Folks, we have thought this morning about the reasons why people don't respond positively to the word of God. I want to... I want to leave you with a much, much more encouraging image. Jesus assures us in his parable that when the word of God is preached, there's always a harvest. He says in verse 8 that still other seed fell on good ground. It produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Isn't that brilliant? 
Isn't that what we want? That every time we read the Word of God, when we hear it, when we open our hearts to it, that growth occurs in our lives. That's what can happen. And I would have thought that's our great desire that this should happen. We need to learn to be fertile ground. Ground that lies ready for the word of God when God's spirit brings it to us. He or she who has ears to hear. Let them hear. Let us pray.